I'll be reading from Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, make it come alive to us today, that is into our very soul. Let us see, let us understand. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Uh, as we near the end of our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, um, our focus has is, is been on the most important subject that's ever looked us in the eyes, and that is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us, that is, he demonstrates his love for us, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is to say that the cross is nothing less but the consummate expression of God's love for sinners. So, let me ask the question. Christ having died for us, to what end and for what purpose was God the Son suffering on the cross? I ask that question because there's a problem today with a growing number of Christians, professing Christians, who are having an increasingly difficult time answering that question. To what end and for what purpose was Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, suffering on the cross? You know, some will say, well, you know, he died as a moral example the ultimate martyr, to serve as, a, as an example of you know, how we should love our neighbor. You know, his death somehow you know, resets and, and, and rebalances a sin-ridden world, so, so long as we can stir up enough energy in and of ourselves and you know, uh, present our free will, we can believe on Jesus. The reason for for this is, is threefold. Number one is a diminishing sense of God's holiness. 
Number two is a diminishing sense of mankind's sinfulness. And number three is an increasing sense of self-worth. Agree or disagree, uh, the inevitable result is that far too many are fast becoming so impressed with themselves, they can't help but wonder why Jesus would have to die for them at all. Such is the scandal of biblical illiteracy, perpetrated by impotent man-centered, therapeutic, consumer-driven, cross-neglected preaching. You hearing what I'm saying? Most of the personal commentary about what the death of Jesus means or meant provides anything but biblical reasons. Trying as they do, to, to sanitize and or sentimentalize the cross of Jesus Christ. Refusing to preach blood atonement because that's messy. Messy. Most of the personal commentary about what the death of Jesus meant or means, again, provides anything but biblical reasons. This morning, in our text before us, we have God's commentary on the cross of his son. God provides us commentary through a series of divine miracles that occurred as he hung there we'll see unfold. Now, looking at the scriptures, as we have been over the past few weeks with regard to the crucifixion, his suffering, his mocking, the whipping, the lashing, we, we see that God in Christ sent his son, the God-man, to suffer by way of human hands, and we've witnessed extreme cruelty, shame, humiliation, physical and psychological torment. From the holy divine perspective, Jesus was innocently dying a divine judgment for sin in the place of many sinners. Jesus' death was nothing less than a sacrifice. It was a payment for sin. It was a ransom being paid. He was providing Propitiation to the Father in expiation for sinners. Propitiation is vertical, which has to do with appeasing God's wrath and justice and punishment due to sinners. And expiation has to do with the horizontal, removing the penalty due those sins as far as the east is from the west. Propitiation, expiation. Where after six hours, the one who is the light of the world screams out with the cry of dereliction in the midst of darkness that consumes not only the land, but his very soul. Hell itself descends upon the sun. 
solving the problem of all problems. Separation from God. Solving the great divorce between us and our creator. And the cure comes to us from the cross, the place where Jesus becomes a curse, for cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, Galatians 3.13. He became a curse, and the cure from the place of being cursed is expressed in two ways. The first is by way of his cry from the cross. The second is the tearing of the curtain in the temple, showing us the beauty and the horror of Calvary, the place he was crucified. Now that, my friends, is a vivid reminder that the cross does not call for our sympathy, but it does demand a response. For to remain indifferent as regards Jesus as the Christ, Son of God, the only way to the Father, to remain indifferent is to be set against him. It's to be decided against him. So if you're one of those who say, well, I sit on the fence as regards Jesus, take heed this morning, my friend. And for all who are in Christ, take heed this morning, my friends, as to what was provided on this day. Amen? So there's the introduction, so we'll pick up where we left off. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, okay, that's noon, Jewish reckoning of time. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. First hour of the day was 6 a.m., so here it is noon, it's the sixth hour. And it's dark. Now, some assume um, that this was a solar eclipse. Okay, that's not possible. Okay, first, it's three hours long. And also, Passover was celebrated at first noon, or at full moon, rather. At full moon, um, solar eclipse happened at new moon. Did I say it happened at full moon? What did I say? <laughs> some say this was a solar eclipse. That's not possible. First, because it was three hours long. And second, Passover was celebrated um, at full moon. A solar eclipse happens at new moon. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Others say it was a dust storm. Okay, that's not possible because this was springtime during the wet season, those kind of shirakos, they call them, dust storms creating dust clouds and darkness don't happen this time of year. Point, God miraculously, miraculously covered the sun for three hours. Anybody got a problem with that? Take it up with him. So what then does this darkness represent? Well, we, we have to go back first, and we'll go back even further than the Exodus itself. We'll eventually go back to creation, where God divided uh, darkness from light and so on. But in Israel's Exodus from Egypt, there was the plague of darkness that was God's last sign judgment to Pharaoh before the angel of death was released to destroy the oldest of every household. We, we read that there was pitch darkness for three days. Pitch darkness was followed by the Passover lamb that was to be slaughtered. And the Israelites were, paint, were to paint the blood of the lamb 
on their doorposts and lentils, their door frames, so that when the angel of death came out, that is God the destroyer, he's the destroyer, we read, capital D, um, he will pass over those homes covered by blood. From the firstborn of every home, from Pharaoh who was on the throne to we read the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon, we read in chapter 12, verse 29 of Exodus. Death. So here, the Exodus was finding its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the Passover lamb. This is the very thing for which Moses and Elijah, do you remember when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration from flesh to glory before their very eyes? They looked up and he was having a discussion with Moses and Elijah who were glorified on the mountain on that day. And Luke 9.31 tells us that they were discussing his departure. Literally, the word, his exodus. The Lord's exodus. So darkness now has enveloped the land, preceding the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. But this time, Death would come to God's firstborn son. His only begotten son who was to die. Now the prophet Amos, out of all the Old Testament darkness texts, and there's many of them, he is the only prophet that tells us of a darkness that begins at noon. Look at it. Amos chapter 8 verse 9 reads, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And then the next verse goes on to speak of what the coming day of judgment will be likened to. Notice verse 10, I will make it like the mourning, that is the lamenting, for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So here, friends, for three dark hours... Sin was bitterly being poured out upon Christ's soul until he himself became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin. He became sin, he who knew no sin, that we in turn might become the, the righteousness of God, that is all who are in him. So think of it, friends. Again and again, for those three hours, his righteous soul recoiled and convulsed with all of the idolatries, the cheating, the stealing, the lies, the murders, the adulteries, the rapes, jealous and envious rage, pride and narcissism of the human heart of all the nations around the world were being poured out upon his soul in this darkness. That's what's going on. He hangs there in darkness, silent for one hour. Silent for two hours. Having never known, friends, a millisecond of separation from the Father, now the infinite Son, the infinite Son, suffers an infinite hell all alone. How did Jesus possibly pay for eternity in hell? Because he's infinite. And he's bearing this judgment in darkness alone. 
Separation from the Father. Alone. Then, at the end of the third hour, the silence is shattered. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama shabbatani, which means, my God, my God, why? Why? Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Father, where are you? Right? Now, you probably know there are seven things that Jesus said from the cross. Mark records just one. We don't read, Father, forgive them of their sins. They know not what they do, but he said it. Or today you will be with me in paradise to one of the robbers. Or to John, son, you know, behold your mother. And to his mother, behold your son, as he points to John. Uh, we don't hear, um, I thirst, or it is finished, or into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, Mark is intent on recording one saying right here, highlighting this great effect of our sin. Alienation from God. Divorce from God. To be exiled from God. To be divided from God. My God. My God. Jesus speaks words reminding everyone with an earshot that his suffering was prophesied as he cries out the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if you go on to read that psalm, the why is answered in verse 3 of Psalm 22. Because you are holy. You are holy. The only one who's ever lived a perfectly holy life, the only one who's ever had perfect fellowship with God that was never interrupted, never disrupted, dies the loud cry of, my God, my God, why? Why have you renounced me? Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Father, why? Deserted. Throughout Mark's gospel, what have we witnessed? From chapter, going back to chapter one in our studies, we get to chapter 3, we see as we move through it that Jesus is deserted by virtually everybody. By his family in chapter 3 who thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was nuts. His nation, the clergy, the government, both religious and pagan, they've rejected him. He's an outcast. He was gradually deserted by the crowds that followed him. The more intense his teaching became, you know, and they realized, well, he's just not, you know, going to provide free health care and free food. You know, he says, unless we drink his blood and eat his flesh, we have no part of him. Cannibalism? Is this guy crazy? They didn't have ears to ear. They depart. They desert him. His own disciples who would betray, deny, and or flee from him. You think there's no one left to desert him. But there is one, the Father. God, the Father, who so loved the world, he sent his son to desert him. After he does what God requires, fulfill the law perfectly, sinlessly, 
and desert him, to forsake him, to abandon him into darkness, hell. Okay, Jesus isn't being poetic here, friends. He's not being dramatic when he cries out, my God, my God. All we've seen in the Gospels up to this point is unbroken oneness. What did he, remember what he said in John chapter 5? You know, I and the Father I want. I only do what I see the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. We're one. Perfectly unified. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God the Father is like? You look at me, he said to his disciples. We're one. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If not, nevertheless, thy will be done. Not my will, but yours. You think it's settled. I mean, he knows that the Father has led him to this difficult place. This is part of the eternal plan. From the beginning, before the foundation of the world, written by the divine hand of God. And here he is. Now in the midst of torture and near suffocation, under darkness, he screams out something. And this something unsettles some Christians. This unsettles some Christians, so they go on to create their own explanations so as to try to make it go away. He wasn't really being forsaken by God. They, they try to tame it down. They try to, to dull the jagged nature of this cry, and they'll say things like this. Um, Jesus is representing every man and woman who experiences, you know, feelings of abandonment. He's there to identify with us emotionally. Or that, you know, he's showing solidarity with all of us who at some time feel forsaken in our lives. No. No. This is a payment being made for sin. For all of God's elect, Jesus said, all those given to me from the Father, I lay my life down as a ransom for those many. Not for all without exception, but for many, those the Father has given me. My sheep, for my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me. I lay my life down for them. Look at the only one, the only one not entangled in his own sin, the only one not entangled in his own self-interest and narcissism, prideful narcissism, look in the mirror, and I begin with myself, the only one not becomes sin-cursed. That's what's going on. Right here. This is a cry of distressed astonishment. As Jesus hangs, the God-man. Fully God, yes. Fully man. Truly God, truly man. For what reason have you abandoned me? For what reason have you forsaken me? All we've had is perfect holy communion for all eternity. So either Jesus was mistaken, he's not forsaken, or he was telling the truth and he was truly forsaken. 
Guess which one it is? He's truly forsaken. See, look, friends, the true nature for the punishment of sin is separation from God. Separation from Almighty God as Jesus here becomes the sin-soaked sponge being wrung out by God the Father. Right here. He's undergoing the horror of that division. My God, my God, I can't see you. That's it. Jesus is no mere martyr. Don't ever think of that folly or foolishness and adopt it. He's a sin-cursed substitute. The Holy One. I want you to think about something. There's a tendency among many who say things like this, God, leave me alone. You go your way, I'll go mine. Leave my conscience alone, let me go, would you? Just leave me alone. People will do that. They do not understand, friends, the extent, the agony of that attitude that will be theirs if they remain in that state to be utterly abandoned by God in the last day. They have not a clue what they're saying. You see, this is the great and terrible effect of sin. And if it's not fixed, and you continue in that place forever, God, let me go my way, you go yours, I'll go mine, to hell you go, abandoned into outer darkness. It's Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates. Now, to be left in that state, you go your way, I'll go mine, leave my conscience alone. Hell. It's a real place. It's an eternal place. It's a frightening place. It's eternal separation from God. And friends, every single person, whether they're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or not, every day they experience what what we refer to as common grace. The sunshine, fresh air, breath, other human beings, fellowship with other... Even if you don't like people, you'd be miserable without other people. You receive common grace every single day of your life, whether you love God or hate God, but when you die and you go to hell, it's all gone. Common grace, gone. Therefore, that's the reason I say, anyone who's not a believer who, 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 does, who refuses to trust in Jesus Christ alone, this is as close to heaven as you will ever be, this life now. Everyone in Christ, this is as close to hell as you'll ever be. You'll be eternally forsaken, cast into what Jesus called outer darkness, where there's wailing and weeping and a gnashing of your teeth. You hated God then, you'll hate him for eternity. You sinned then, you refused him, and you'll sin forever in hell. 
This is what he's taking upon himself. In order to take that punishment away that I deserve, that, that you deserve, God in Christ becomes the filthy one. The one ridden with sin, he's cast out. He's exiled, you see? God forsaken by God, right here. With no one to console him, no one to comfort him, no one to assure him he dies alone. You know, the irony for believers here on the cross is that God is most clearly revealed where it looks like he's the most absent. Right here. The cross. You know, let's admit, as believers, uh, we, we only see God oftentimes in the glorious, you know, and obvious place. Right? Oh, God bless me. Got that new job. Anytime we're doing well in life, and of course when we have well-adjusted children. We're happy. We have a good retirement plan, adventurous vacations. What do we say? Oh, God's blessing me. But we don't see, we don't see him like that in the dark places, oftentimes. But we only associate God with happy things, right? Because I'm happy. <laughs> All that to say? All of theology must be seen through this cry of dereliction, this scream of abandonment. Jesus, here. What did he say earlier in his ministry? This coming death is a baptism that I must be baptized with. This punishment is the cup that I must drink, the cup of my father's wrath. So hell came to him this day and he gives his life, here is a ransom for many, sparing us the eternal blackness of darkness, which is hell. The sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, he was God, forsaken of God. Right here. Was Jesus truly forsaken on the cross, friends? Yeah, you better believe it. Make sure you know that. Verse 35. And some of the bystanders, hearing him, said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now remember, Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. He never died. God took him up. So Jews widely thought that he was some kind of helper in the time of need. It's kind of like the, the Roman Catholic notion of patron saints who come to your aid. It's religious fairy tales. This is a religious fairy tale. So some standing around uh, wanted to see if his supposed cry to Elijah would bring about his rescue. Now, we have to think about John's gospel at this point because Mark doesn't include this, but John tells us it was at this point that he said, I thirst. I thirst. So, one of the things associated with the crucifixion was a raging fever. 
So Jesus, at this point, is thirsty to say the least. Extremely thirsty. So he, he wants to parch his, he, he wants to wet his parched lips. He wants to wet his throat. He wants it to be clear because he has something yet to say. And that is his final cry. Mark doesn't include that either. Um, and it's not a cry of resignation. It is a cry of victory. When he cries out, it is finished. It is finished. The work of redemption complete. The sins of my people paid in full. No balance remaining. So if you think you have something to earn, you better repent of that. Paid in full. You believe? You entrust yourself to Christ? Paid in full. It's finished. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So he said, it is finished. The other accounts tell us, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The result, a great reversal of creation. A great reversal of creation. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, not bottom to top, from top to bottom, so that there is no mistake about who done it. Amen? No mistake. God's omnipotent hand, his all-powerful hand, reached out of heaven, if you will, and shredded this thing, divided this thing in half. And at that moment, there was a great earthquake. The rocks were splitting which opened the tombs of the dead, and then the day Jesus was raised, I believe that's when those who were in the tombs that were cracked open came out. I believe they came out then, and not at this moment, Matthew 27 records. He's just recording the facts. Okay, now let's talk about this curtain. This curtain has a long religious history, and it's imperative that we understand it. This followed um, Israel's Exodus out of Egypt, when Almighty God prescribed, he gave orders for the construction of the tabernacle. This is the place where God would draw close to his people, and as we studied Exodus, anytime God is near, um, there, there's an element of safety there, but during this time, there was a great element of danger, because if you pro approach holy God in the wrong way, outside of his prescribed measures, you will be consumed. Therefore, there's a tabernacle. Therefore, there's a sacrificial system. Therefore, there are substitutionary sacrifices laid down to be burned, their blood to be shed, and a priesthood to go into this place and sprinkle blood, to lift up prayers on behalf of the people, and then to enter into the holy place. And then finally, only once a year, God said, I'll, I'll allow one guy in once a year, and it's not because there's anything righteous in him, but he's going to be one of my servants who will prepare himself to enter this place, and he will come in and make blood atonement on behalf of the people as well as himself. Once a year, to enter into the holy of holies, to enter in behind this curtain that separates holy God from sinful people. And embroidered on that 
curtain were cherubim. Mighty, fierce, powerful angels. The first place in the Bible that we read about cherubim, where? The Garden of Eden after the fall. God sets these mighty cherubim at the east part to provide a barricade so that Adam and Eve could not return into the garden temple of God and eat from the tree of life that is into the presence of God where they would be consumed. By Jesus' day, by by that time in Herod's great temple, um, the curtain had been expanded. It was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and a hand breadth thick, four inches thick. Josephus helps us out here, and that first century historian tells us that it had embroidered upon it with golden thread a picture of the universe, along with cherubim, protecting re-entry into the presence of God. So you have stars of heaven embroidered on this thing, which is evidence that the temple was symbolic of the cosmos, A barrier here that pictured distance, again, between sinful people and holy God, the presence of God. And again, Eden was the first garden temple. And it was supposed to be expanded by Adam and Eve by way of their seed around the whole world. Remember that? That was the command. They sinned. It was closed off. It was barricaded until, until... The tabernacling presence of God himself would come in the flesh, Jesus, the Christ, son of the living God, who would come and uphold God's law and then be plunged into darkness through which would once again come light by way of the light of the world. So it caused this curtain not to be moved It caused this curtain not to be pulled down, but torn from the top to the bottom. Divided. This is a divine act of God tearing down that wall of separation. He sliced it in half, providing now safe access into the presence of almighty God by way of the pure and innocent one who was slaughtered and cast into darkness and the way to hell fell upon him. That's what happens here. The rest of us, guilty as can be, are told now to enter. We're told, come on home, for God did what only God can do. He bore his own just punishment. Jesus took it upon himself so we can waltz into paradise. Separation removed. Barrier destroyed, divided. Separation from God cured. How? The Son of God was driven out. The Son of God was exiled, divided from the Father as he hung in darkness on the cross. Beautiful, isn't it? So, needless to say, Jesus' death on this day spells the end of the Jewish religion. The temple ceased to operate that day. 
although they who rejected Christ continued for almost 40 years to attempt to atone for sin by way of sacrificial animals, God comes in 70 AD and he stops the Jews from sacrificing an abomination unto God, calling into question and mocking the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, never to be repaired was the temple that was destroyed. Never to be rebuilt. Because Jesus is the temple. He's the tabernacle. He came and was destroyed to remove this barrier. All who are in Christ are in the temple. He's the true living temple. Think about this. Some theological implications here. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at his baptism, in chapter 1, it's in verse 10, we read that the heavens were torn apart. You can go read it. Chapter 1, verse 10. They were divided for only him to see. And that's when the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and then he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted in every way and beyond every way that we ever will. Victoriously. That's the beginning of his ministry. That's the bookend of the front of his ministry. The bookend at the back of his ministry is right here in chapter 15, verse 38, when this curtain is torn in two, and this is for all of us to see. We go back to Genesis 1. What do we read? God divided the darkness that covered the earth with light. That's creation. Adam and Eve sinned, the consequence of which? Decreation. Are you with me? Decreation. And increasing entropy set in where everything is now subject to decay, moving towards death, Genesis 3. Jesus comes, the light of the world, and by way of his work on the cross, tearing down, tearing this divider, this barrier, this barricade in half, he inaugurates re-creation. What did he say at the outset of his ministry? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom. All that's left to come is a new heaven and a new earth, already inaugurated by the light of the world. This is God's commentary. And what Jesus was doing on the cross in darkness on this day. This is the end of the great divide between holy God and sinful yet redeemed people. Heavy, rich, we ought to be driven to our knees in thankfulness. And this work goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where that original barrier was. The cherubim with their swords aflame. So in the death and subsequent resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, he was restoring Eden. He's restoring Eden. That is unhindered fellowship with God once again through the finished work of Jesus right here. And Isaiah's prophecy, okay, I'm wrapping up, Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 60 <laughs> was coming true. Listen to it. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, 
and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and... What's that word? Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What do we see at the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ? We saw light in the midst of darkness on that night when angelic hosts came and were singing, and there was light at midnight. And the nations came from the east as the magi came and were responding to that light. That was at his birth. Here at his death, we saw darkness at noon. Darkness at noon, after which came the reemergence of light at 3 p.m. And the result, nations coming to the light. Notice the last miracle. We see the curse of darkness. We see the curtain torn. Now we see a conversion, the miracle of a conversion. Gentile, i.e. the nations coming to the light. Notice. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is the man who was overseeing the detail of four, the four soldiers. Their job was to crucify criminals overseen by a centurion. A centurion would oversee 100 men. This is the centurion. Remember Mark's controlling theme of his gospel since chapter 1, verse 1. He sets out to prove that this is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The only ones to recognize Jesus from out of his Galilean ministry, who were the first to recognize Jesus as the Son of God? Demons. We know who you are, the Son of the living God. Have you come to destroy us before the time? Here now, a centurion, a Gentile, stands at the foot of the cross and says, truly this was the Son of God. The only person a loyal Roman would ever call son of God, guess who that was? Caesar. Now, I know your footnote says that, you know, he said truly this was the son of a God. Okay, but listen to this. He's talking about the one true God. Matthew's account says, they, the soldiers, were filled with awe and said, truly, this is the Son of God. Luke says, he, the centurion, glorified the God, definite article, almighty God. I believe he's converted here. The nations have come to the light through the darkness which the Son took upon himself. Consider what the centurion heard this afternoon. Consider. Now, crucifixions were typically, history tells us, crucifixions were typically marked by screams of rage and wild curses directed at the soldiers and the crowds. He witnesses Jesus die. What does he see? Well, this is what he hears, first of all. Father, forgive them, for they know not. 
but they do. He heard that. He heard all seven of Jesus' sayings from the cross. He watched Jesus remain silent under the scoffing of Israel's leaders. Oh, he saved others. Let's see him save himself. Come down from the cross. Christ in silence. This death was entirely different. He heard Jesus look down at John and say, John, behold, Mary, right? Behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. In other words, he was seeing to it that she was taken care of. He witnessed that. He heard Jesus say to the robber, most assuredly I say to you, the believing robber, today you will be in paradise with me. He heard that. There was an incredible earthquake. He felt that. Darkness upon the land. He felt that. But notice, Mark seems to say it was the way he died that impacted him. Notice, he stood facing him and saw that in this way he breathed his last. In what way? In full control of the situation. Remember what he said earlier? No man takes my life. No man takes my life. I've come, and, and I, lay, I have power to lay my life down, and I have power to take it up again. And here on this day, he hears Jesus cry out, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So it's like Jesus, he sees Jesus take hold of death, and he pronounces victory over it, triumph. It's finished. He'd never witnessed it anything like this. And Jesus dies his last breath in full and complete obedience to the Father. He sees that. Jesus dies intentionally. Jesus dies miraculously. His death was efficacious, effectual for you, believer. It settles something. It accomplishes something. It seals something. It removes something. It destroys something. It destroys the barrier between you and God. And you're brought in. You're drawn in. Because he was cast out. Beautiful. And the father is as though he's saying, look, see? Do you see? This is my love for thee. That's what he's saying. God so loved the world, he gave his son. Gave him to do what? To bear his unmitigated wrath. To open the barrier. To tear down the curtain. For you. Look at Hebrews 6, verse 19. We have this is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You don't need a priest on this earth to, to go and represent you before the Father. Jesus is our great high priest who represents us before the Father. Forever. 
That's what intercession is. It's mediation. As I've said before, intercession isn't prayer. Intercession is mediation. He represents you before the Father. That is, he represents you in the second Adam. You're no longer represented by way of the first Adam. You're now represented before the Father in the last Adam, Jesus, who is the Christ, Son of the living God. Hebrews 10.14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Are you being sanctified? You're a believer. You're being sanctified. If you're not a believer, if you're not a believer, you are already condemned. The condemnation is upon you already. The call is to repent and believe, and you'll be brought from the category of condemnation to the category of no condemnation. Reject Christ, you're already condemned because you reject Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised, he is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another all the, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice, have confidence, draw near, hold fast, stir up one another. That is the response to Christ and his finished work. Right there. That is the community of the cross as our very lives and attitudes are being shaped by it. Amen? Again, the cross of Christ does not call for our sympathy, but it demands a response. Friend, if you're here and you have not embraced him, if you reject Christ, you believe there are many ways to God, let me tell you this. You will go into eternity if you go without embracing him, you will be cast into outer darkness and you will experience the volcano of God's wrath upon yourself alone. And I'll tell you this, there's no party in hell. It's not you and your boys partying. You will experience the volcano of God's wrath upon yourself alone for eternity in utter darkness. But if you will place your faith and trust in this one and only substitute and you rest in him alone, you trust in him alone, you have no confidence in your own self-righteousness and you begin to see that your self-righteousness is nothing but rubbish and you see his as golden and his righteousness impure, by faith you trust yourself to him, he says that you'll be cloaked positionally in his righteous robes and you'll be guaranteed entry into his presence to have forever, everlasting joy and fellowship with God the Son and God the Father, God the Holy Spirit because of what he did on this day on the cross. So respond by way of faith and trust. Call on him 
the one who came and died, the one who rose again, the one who will come again, and you will be saved from God, his wrath, by God, his grace, for God, his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that separation has been resolved. The great divorce has a cure. The substitutionary sacrifice of your son who stood in our place this day condemned, having accomplished what we never could, and that is uphold your law perfectly, the holy righteous one. Help us to see the cross vividly as it truly is for the glory of your name, Jesus, your son, our Lord, by the presence of the Spirit. Amen.